The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Half a millennium ago today, May 22nd, 1520, the Spaniards slaughtered the Aztecs in the great temple of Tenochtitlan in the heart of what's now Mexico City. Hernan Cortez had gone to the east coast to fight with some other Spaniards from Cuba who'd come to arrest him. And in his absence, Montezuma asked permission to hold the traditional ceremony of tox cattle. The Spanish version is that they killed the participants to stop the ritual human sacrifice. The Aztec version is that the conquerors wanted the gold the participants were wearing. I would have expected the 500th anniversary to be quite a big deal, but uh, the COVID-19 has clobbered it as it has clobbered everything else, and... uh, a virtual commemoration with uh, Montezuma reenactors in 24 tiny Skype boxes on the telly would be even lamer than all the other 24 tiny Skype box virtual ceremonies we've seen in the last couple of months. But we note the anniversary here. I have never been one who says the coronavirus is like the flu because, as President Trump said uh, a week or two back, he's never known anyone who's died of the flu. Same for me. Uh, Whereas I'm sad to say I've known quite a few people who've died of the COVID. Uh, I'm happy to say, though, I've also known people who have recovered from it, including my old chum Boris Johnson. If you've listened to our James Bond special, if you've watched our Oscar show from a couple of years back, if you heard Lulu singing to Sir With Love on yesterday's show, you'll know Don Black. Don wrote to Sir With Love and Diamonds Are Forever and Thunderball and The World Is Not Enough and Ben for Michael Jackson and on and on. And Don was stricken by the Wuhan virus and spent over a week in hospital in London. It took a while for the nurses to figure out who he was, but when they did, on the day of his departure, they all serenaded him with this song that won the Oscar for Don and his composing partner, John Barry. Uh, We usually start the show with a bit of musical parody, a bit of uh, satirical song, but Don's lyric played straight is just perfect for the times we live in. It is a melancholy reflection that he wrote it for a film about a lioness who doesn't want to live in a cage. And it now applies to a so-called free world in which citizens are not free to engage in work, nor free even to step outside without government permission. Born free, as free as the wind blows, as free as the grass grows, born free to follow your heart. Live free, and beauty surrounds you. The world still astounds you. It's time you look at a star. Stay free where no walls divide you. You're free as a rose. 
but only worth living Cause you're born free The matchless Matt Monroe, as Don says on his BBC show every weekend, you're free as the roaring tide, so there's no need to hide. Live free and life is worth living. Words to live by from my friend Don Black in the first British song to win an Oscar. Take your time getting back up to speed, Don. He has an autobiography out in a few months, and you've got to be at full strength for a gruelling book tour. On the eve of the Memorial Day weekend, a bit of good news from America. On Wednesday, I was in for Rush and interviewed Sidney Powell, the ferocious lady lawyer for Michael Flynn, who's the only reason Flynn is not languishing in jail right now. He was being screwed over not only by dirty investigators, dirty prosecutors and a dirty judge, but even by his own former pre-Sydney defence team. The government has now abandoned its lousy case and moved to dismiss, but the dirty judge, one Emmett Sullivan, wants to keep it going and find a way to put Flynn in jail, even though there's no longer any case. So when I interviewed Sydney, and you can hear that, uh, you can hear the whole show, in fact, right here at Stein Online, she'd just gone to the Court of Appeals to get this judge booted and the case dismissed. And there was a question I never got to put to Sydney, namely this. When you go to court, there's uh, an opposing party. If it's a trial court, the opposing party is the defendant. If it's an appeal court, the opposing party's the appellee. And I wanted to ask Sydney, who's the opposing party here? Because the two parties, the United States and Mr Flynn, are in agreement. They want the case over. So the opposing party is, in effect, the judge, Sullivan, which is most bizarre. But the Court of Appeals has now confirmed that and ordered this rogue jurist, this unconstitutional vandal, to file a reply to Sidney Powell's excellent brief and explain why he's determined to keep this thing going. That's a good sign that they're taking this uh, brazen judicial usurpation seriously. Liberals and the media should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, for backing Sullivan's act of vandalism, makes a mockery of the entire balance of the common law system. In related news, the same FBI that fitted up Flynn has said that the attack on the naval air station at Corpus Christi is, quote, terrorism-related. Gee, thanks. Is terrorism-related like home-style cooking uh, on a restaurant door, if you remember restaurants? And does this trail of terrorism-related activities go back half a decade, like the Pensacola killer you guys let into the country? In other news of government incompetence, if you're still waiting for your COVID unemployment benefits or even for the state website traffic to subside sufficiently for you to be able to file a claim... It might interest you to know that Washington state has lost, quote, hundreds of millions of dollars to a Nigerian fraud ring which used stolen information to file false unemployment claims, uh, which seem to have been processed uh, a lot quicker than most genuine uh, unemployment claims. Hundreds of millions of dollars. It's heartening to know at a time when hairstylists and hoteliers and priests are non-essential 
that the good old reliable Nigerian email scammers count as essential workers and they didn't lay down their tools during the lockdown. 40 million Americans out of work, but Nigerian fraudsters living large on American taxpayer money. All we need now is Kamala Harris to propose a Senate resolution condemning Nigeriaphobia. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Instead of another constable making a complete arse of himself on a citizen's mobile telephone, which I confess is getting to me a bit, I thought I'd make a more general observation today. If you heard my recent serialization of Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, and if you haven't, you should, because it's a cracker, you'll know that in the London of 1665, pedestrians sought to avoid crossing each other's paths. So if someone was approaching on the northern side of the street, you'd cross over to the southern side of the street. And if someone was already on the southern side of the street, you'd walk in the middle of the street because the carts and wagons were few and far between in a time of contagion. These measures were not ordered by the government, but adopted by prudent citizens in their own interest. Something of the same has been happening in London 355 years later. People are walking in the mostly empty roadway to avoid exposure to their fellow Londoners on the sidewalk. Now the Metropolitan Police has issued a plea for the citizenry to cease walking in the street. Quote, if you do go out, please don't walk in the road to avoid passing pedestrians on the pavement momentarily crossing paths with someone won't give you COVID-19, unquote. Really? Two observations. First, how do the Metropolitan Police know that? Because it isn't actually borne out by the science. Momentarily doing anything bears a risk because infection is a moment. The guy coming toward you is on his telephone speaking to a friend about his how his stimulus check still hasn't come and he's agitated about it and so he's speaking moistly as Justin Trudeau calls it and his agitated moistness happens to peak at the precise moment you cross paths. But second, never mind all that because for the past two months in this spot we've reported story after story after story where police have arrested members of the public in their own front gardens sitting on park benches, uh, strolling through parks, walking dogs in wilderness areas on the grounds that they're endangering their fellow citizens. Even though, if there even are any fellow citizens within view, uh, they're more like 20 metres away than 2 metres away. So if you're walking your dog in a park and there's someone 200 metres in the distance, the coppers take the position you're endangering the guy's life. But the same coppers reserve the right to herd you onto a narrow, crowded, medieval pavement because passing someone two inches away is no threat whatsoever to your life. As I've said for many years, all tyranny is capricious, whimsical, arbitrary. The rules are self-contradictory for a reason. So that whatever you do, it'll be the wrong thing if it suits the authorities to want it to be the wrong thing. 
the Londoners of 1665 were trusted to make their own judgments on these things. The Londoners of 2020 are mere wards of an inconsistent, randomly punitive state. Stay free, live free, and life is worth living. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com slash T-F-O-T. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. I mentioned at the top of the show that today is the 500th anniversary of the Great Massacre at Tenochtitlan in Mexico while Cortez was out of town. Whenever I think of Cortez, I think of him as Stout Cortez, which is by far the most famous adjective appended to the man. That's stout in the sense of sturdy and determined and resolute, uh, not a fat bloke. I've no idea whether Cortez was morbidly obese, as Nancy Pelosi would say, but it doesn't seem the sort of thing uh, Charles V... I think that's Carlos I in Spanish. It doesn't seem the sort of thing Charles V would have been looking for in a conquistador. Stout Cortez comes from a sonnet by John Keats, written two centuries ago. And it's not really about Cortez at all. In fact, it's rather remarkable because it's a hit poem about the virtues of one translation of a foreign language over another. I mean, think about that. If you were pitching it to a publisher, yeah, I've got this boffo idea. It's about what a knockout this translator is compared to the other fellas. But that's exactly how it happened. Keats did not read Greek, which meant he read Homer in translation. And in those days, the preferred translations were by Pope and Dryden, and they were rather literary and elegant renderings of the original. And then one evening, Keats was with Charles Cowden Clark. They'd been friends since boyhood because Keats was a pupil at a school run by Clark's dad. And his pal brought with him a translation of Homer by the Elizabethan playwright George Chapman. And it's much more primal and raw and basic in its language. And it brought Homer alive for Keats in a way that he never had been. And he and Clark stayed up into the wee small hours with Keats yelping with delight at every passage that caught his fancy. And the next morning, at 10 a.m., when a bleary Charles Cowden Clark staggered downstairs for breakfast, he found this sonnet waiting for him upon the table. Keats fancies himself, like Cortez, a traveller in realms of gold. But in this case... Uh, they're literary realms. He travels imaginatively. But listen for the neat writer's trick he pulls off. The first half of the poem uses a lot of uh, frilly and writerly language. Bards in fealty, deep-browed, demean. It's uh, consciously poetic, so to speak. And then in the second half, as soon as he mentions this revelatory translator Chapman, the language itself turns raw, loud and bold, stout indeed, and the poet is as an astronomer discovering a new planet. He, um, he undoubtedly has in mind Uranus, uh, which was discovered in 1781 and is the first planet of our time, 
as opposed to those known to the ancient world. Uh, and the poet is also as one with stout Cortez from Medellin in Castile, uh, surveying the Pacific Ocean for the very first time. First published in the Examiner on December the 1st, 1816 by John Keats on first looking into Chapman's Homer. Much have I travelled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told, that deep-browed Homer ruled as his demean. Yet did I never breathe its pure serene, till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies, when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez, when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific, and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. A poem from Me to You by John Keats on first looking into Chapman's Homer. I had a schoolmaster called Mr Chapman who taught Homer, so the title tickled us lads. Uh, the climax of the poem, uh, Stout Cortez, Silent Upon a Peak in Darien, never actually happened. Uh, because Darien is in uh, Panama, not Mexico. And the first conquistador to see the Eastern Pacific uh, was uh, not Cortez, but in fact Balboa in the year 1513. Uh, Cortez saw the ocean later in Mexico and Honduras. Whether that was an error on Keats's part or dramatic license, we shall never know. But for me, uh, it cannot mar that sonnet. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Ms. E. Thompson writes from the Sunshine State of Florida, apropos all our recent China woes. And we haven't even got to the subject of Hong Kong that is a particular heartbreak for me. I spent several years doing business over there before, quote, the transition, and was overwhelmed, for starters, by the relatively innocuous federal taxes the reluctance of citizens to accept federal welfare in order to save face, and the overall enthusiasm and hustle of small and large business owners. I did some of my best work there and made some big money for my company. In the 80s and early 90s, I deemed Hong Kong capitalist central of the universe. I admired that aspect of the country stroke colony more than my own. Thoughts on how they will retrieve their economic freedom. I'm not quite sure what you mean by the phrase federal taxes there, Ms. Thompson, as you're writing about Hong Kong in the grand old colonial days of the 80s and 90s. A lot of what you admire is due to a colonial office civil servant called Sir John Cooperthwaite, who was sent out to Honkers in 1945 and was financial secretary throughout the 1960s and is in many ways the father of modern Hong Kong. It wasn't so much what he did as what he didn't do. He was uh, told that his job was to improve the colony's economy. 
and he discovered that the best way to improve the economy was to leave it alone and let the people get on with it. He eventually, um, I think around about 1972, something like that, 1973, he eventually coined a name for this policy, positive non-interventionism, much admired by Milton Friedman, among others. As uh, Sir John put it, in the long run, the aggregate of decisions of individual businessmen exercising individual judgment in a free economy, even if often mistaken, is less likely to do harm than the centralised decisions of a government, and certainly the harm is likely to be counteracted faster, unquote, as opposed, like the harm government does, uh, to getting chiselled in granite permanently. Right now, wherever you live in the Western world, you're under an anti-Cooperthwaite regime because COVID-19 quote-unquote stimulus packages have liberated the central planners in every government. But Sir John meant it. He told London he wasn't even going to compile GDP statistics for Hong Kong because officials would only use the numbers as a justification for stupid meddling. He loathed statistics in general at least as applied to the economy. I said in my book, America Alone, that if China were less insecure, they'd tear down the Chairman Mao banners and plaster Sir John's face all over Tiananmen Square, because he's the reason Hong Kong was worth getting its hands on. Unfortunately, the Chinese government is the mega anti-Cooperthwaite. Instead of positive non-interventionism, they're the biggest negative interventionists on the planet. Beijing has certain international treaty obligations with respect to Hong Kong, which they are now trampling and trashing without a peep from the other signatory to that treaty, the United Kingdom. Come on, Boris! Stop shagging the birds for 48 hours. Stop sucking up to Huawei. Man up and side with your former fellow British subjects protesting in the streets. There's no reason why President Trump should be denouncing what's going on if the treaty signatory itself isn't even bothering to say a word. Uh, basically, these are critical times in which sufficient international pressure has to be applied to the chai to leave Hong Kong alone. But let's wind the clock back a few months. Chairman Xi had two problems. One, President Trump had decided to force the issue with Beijing when it came to trade. Second, a third of the entire population of Hong Kong was out in the streets defying him and humiliating him every night by insisting on keeping their freedom. Then the phone rings and some minion is suddenly telling him that there's something goofy going on in Wuhan. He could have done things by the book, as Susan Rice likes to say. He could have told the truth to the WHO, stopped international flights out of Wuhan airport, not destroyed coronavirus samples, not uh, disappeared the brave men and women who were trying to get the word out to the world and then killed many of those same brave men and women. But Xi did none of these things because he wanted to punish the world for supporting the Hong Kong protesters and demanding that on trade, China play by the same rules as everybody else. Right now, Beijing is consciously teaching a lesson that it's too late to stop China becoming the world's dominant power because it's already the world's dominant power. 
And bullying Australia, bullying Hong Kong is designed to underline that fact. And presumably to remind the likes of Boris that if he ever remembers which mistress's flat he left his testicles at and speaks out, he'll get the same treatment. Mark Stein's Last Call. John Glenn was the first American to orbit our planet in 1962. But out of the cockpit, he lived a very down-to-earth life. Shortly after his birth, his parents moved to New Concord, Ohio, a town of about 900 people, and started a plumbing company. And for his 95 years on this earth and beyond this earth, John Glenn could never remember a time when he had not known Annie Castor. John and I have known each other for, for uh, forever and ever, you might say. Which is one, well, we've enjoyed each other. Uh, after Dad graduated from Ohio State Dental School, they wanted to move back to Nukonquik. And his mother and dad moved over there at the same time. And the Glens and the Castors became very, very good friends. So I've known John since we were two years old. <laughs> and when we were graduating from high school, we sort of thought, oh, let's elope. And our families, both couples, said, you're going to college. Three, three days after he had received his wings and he was home, we were married. John Glenn's high school sweetheart, grade school sweetheart, was a perfectly normal member of that community, except for one unique distinction. She had a stutter. The very first time that I, I realized that I was not like all of the other kids was in the sixth grade. And uh, I got up to uh, give a poem, and one of the uh, kids laughed. And I thought, uh-oh, I am not like anybody else in this room. I think I was the only stutterer in town at that time. I was never asked to recite in junior high or high school or college. But I was lucky because I was in a small school where everybody knew me and uh, I was accepted. There have there, been some awful things happen. That lots of people would turn away, lots of people would laugh, lots of people would uh, not even want to be close to me. Uh, our daughter will always remember after John's first flight, uh, he was asked to speak for Congress and Lynn will always remember some of the people when they came up to me and I couldn't talk, they would turn away. She literally could not speak on such occasions. The stutter was not cured until she was in her 50s. But Annie Glenn led a rich, full life. She was an accomplished musician who was offered an organ scholarship by Juilliard, but she turned it down to stay in New Concord with John. They were married for over 73 years, and during the space age, she was unquestionably the doyen of the so-called Astronaut Wives Club. Almost six decades after her husband's landmark voyage, she has finally joined him among the stars. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus, a few months after her 100th birthday, Annie Glenn. 
I wonder if in all her many visits to the White House, Mrs. Glenn ever met Wilson Roosevelt German. Young Wilson was born in North Carolina, walked to school shoeless, and at the age of 12 concluded his education to work as a farmhand. In 1955, he moved to Washington and two years later entered service at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue as a cleaner. He served 11 presidents, first Eisenhower, then Kennedy. It was Mrs. Kennedy who promoted Wilson German to Butler, then Johnson, who ordered his own doctors to treat Mr. German's dying wife, then Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, another Bush as the decades tumbled by, and then a black man who had started with presidents accustomed to being served by Negroes, ended over half a century of tenure at the White House with a president who was himself black and felt rather awkward about the whole thing. For an elected head of state as opposed to a monarch, the palace can feel a bit like living in a very grand, grand Hyatt, not especially cosy and comforting over the long term. As his eighth president's granddaughter and tenth president's daughter put it, Wilson Roosevelt German was one of those who made a government building feel like home. Someone that I loved very much. He was one of the White House's longest-serving employees, his name was Wilson Roosevelt German. We all called him Mr. German. And my parents said this about him. He's, he was a lovely man. He was the first person we saw in the morning when we left the residence and the last person we saw each night when we returned. What was he like, Jenna? <laughs> he was the loveliest. I think lovely is a word that can kind of be overused. Mm -hmm. But he was always smiling. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because... People will say, like, gosh, how could you have made, how, how was the White House? Did it, was it, did it feel like home? Yeah. And the reason why it felt like home was because of people like him. When we had shown the girls and Mrs. Obama around the White House, we said, meet these people. Mm -hmm. They will be your family. Mm -hmm. You will love them. Wow. And Mr. German did that in tenfolds. We loved him. He was beloved by my family, and he will be mm. so missed. Jenna Bush Hager remembering her father and grandfather's sometime butler at the White House, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 91, a man who served 11 presidents and was named after two more, Wilson Roosevelt German. Alan Turing was an undoubted genius, but that genius has perhaps obscured the contribution of all the others who worked with him at Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire, which became the centre of British code-breaking efforts during the Second World War. They're now legendary, the code-breakers of England's Bletchley Park, who eavesdropped on Germany all through World War II to D-Day and the fall of Berlin. Parachute landing in Normandy. Airport. Mathematicians, crossword puzzle enthusiasts, linguists, who get credit for shortening that war by two years. One of those mathematicians was Anne Mitchell, Miss Anne Williamson then, who had read at Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford, what her headmistress called the unladylike subject of mathematics and did it so well that upon graduation she was recruited by the Foreign Office for a post called Temporary Assistant, although what that job entailed they couldn't tell her. So she went to Bletchley Park, which is a somewhat unprepossessing Victorian country house, and found herself working in the even more unprepossessing Hut 6, 
which is exactly what it sounds like. There she was given two weeks training on the Germans' Enigma encryption machine and then spent the rest of the war in the Hut 6 machine room working round the clock to decrypt the Third Reich's daily Enigma settings. All German codes were changed at midnight, and her job was to crack the code as soon after midnight as possible. If it was a tough night, it took her until 9am. The story of how the German Enigma codes were smashed by means of sheer ingenuity, determination and eccentricity too, seems to exert a greater fascination as each year goes by. There's clearly something in the story of Bletchley which is finding an answering echo in today's age. There's something about the scruffy, distracted, improvisational genius of people like Alan Turing, Dilly Knox, Josh Cooper. Something about the idea of young students being drawn straight from universities and spending long days and longer nights poring over apparently random jumbles of letters generated by machines that had millions upon millions of potential combinations. There is something about these people learning to discern orderly patterns in chaos. Now, if you go there today, you'll see that there are still the specially built concrete blocks and the special, specially built wooden huts in the grounds all around. It's, it's a surprisingly mundane backdrop to what George Steiner called one of the greatest achievements of the 20th century. And this, of course, makes it just all the more fascinating. Because if you look at those old wooden huts now, just imagine the huge leaps of ingenuity that were made within them. Within those plain Spartan structures, the most brilliant lateral thinkers of their generation got to the point where they were able to read encoded messages from Hitler himself. Anne Mitchell worked in Hut 6 until VE Day. On the 75th anniversary a couple of weeks back, I played a bit of George VI's message to his peoples. Today, we give thanks to Almighty God for a great deliverance. Speaking from our empire's oldest capital city, a war battered, but never for one moment daunted or dismayed. Speaking from London, I ask you to join with me in that act of thanksgiving. Of Germany and the enemy who drove all Europe into war has been finally overcome. Also overcoming his stutter, as Annie Glenn did later, King George VI. That was how most of the king's subjects heard the news, from His Majesty. Young Anne heard it at work, in the course of Bletchley's daily decryptions. That's to say she was one of the very few to hear the news of the German surrender from the Germans. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 97, Anne Mitchell. That's almost it. But I want to thank you yet again for all your kind comments upon the third birthday of the Mark Stein Club and for all your membership renewals. Uh, Robert Miniella, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Robert. Uh, Robert is a first-week founding member from my hometown of Toronto. 
Oh, my goodness, it's closer than that. Mr Mignella lives a stone's throw from where I spent a very happy part of my youth, just round the corner uh, from a lovely young girl I dated all too briefly. Uh, Robert writes, uh, oh dear, after all that geographic communion with me, he's about to open up a chasm. Robert says, I am addicted to Mark's prescient analysis. My tastes in music, however, are with the bands Muse, The Foo Fighters and Ben Harper. Otherwise, I would love to sip scotch with him one day. Maybe we'll do that, Robert, although I'll want to check out the bar's jukebox beforehand. Muse, Foo Fighters, Ben Harper. If you're American, have a great Memorial Day weekend. If you're Canadian, like Robert, have a great non-Memorial Day weekend. Kathy Shadle will be here at Stein Online with her Saturday movie date. We'll have a Sunday song of the week, probably not the Foo Fighters, and some Memorial Day observances. Let me renew my best wishes to our friend Don Black with this version of our closing theme that has a few James Bond, John Barry flourishes in the arrangement uh, that has an old 007 hand who's written more uh, James Bond theme songs than any other lyricist. Uh, Don may appreciate some of these little John Barry touches. In Don's words, you were born free, stay free. That's the trick of it. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.